Thank you for listening to the Missio Day Uptown Podcast. We are a church committed to our neighborhood, seeking to love and serve our beautifully unique community as we join God as he makes all things new. To learn more about us, visit mduptown.com. I felt the anxiousness in the room as she started to read the, like, do this, don't do this. Everyone's like, how's this going to go? Um, that was sort of a joke. I hope you're not anxious. Um, I, quick, quick, thank you. Quick couple of things, uh, and then we'll jump into this morning. Um, just the chat after. It is going to be super brief, uh, and we're going to sort of go pretty close to right after service. Hey, Zoe. Um, we're going to go pretty close to right after service, and so we won't keep you super long. You're not going to miss uh, lunch at Golden House or anything like that. Um, and so we'll, we'll be quick there. Um, community night, I have also have been bringing my Switch. And so if you're like, oh, my kids, I don't know if they're going to have fun. They are. Like, we were having so much fun. They're going to play video games at home. Just have them come play video games with us, right? So it's super fun, and I will beat them in Smash. Um, so... As you guys can see, we are in uh, a series on Ephesians. Um, I see a couple new faces, a couple faces that haven't been with us for a few weeks. Uh, and so just to quickly recap where we are. We, before Easter, did the first three chapters of Ephesians, the sort of indicative, or yeah, indicative chapters. What is true of you as a result of Jesus, right? We took a break for uh, Easter, and then we've been in four through six, which are the imperative chapters. What do we do in light of our identity in Christ, Right? Uh, last week, uh, in the week before, we sort of double-tapped on Ephesians 4, 1 through 16. Uh, Therefore, uh, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, right? If all of this is true in chapters 1 through 3, I want you to, as a result, walk in this way, right? And so that's where we were, and where are we this morning? Well, if you pull back up our first verse here, so I tell you this and insist in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, right? So 17 is a little bit of a continuation of this idea that we were uh, already talking about last week and the week before, right? In Ephesians 4.1, he's saying, therefore, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And now he's saying, so no longer walk this way, right? So that's where we're at. I just wanted to orient us uh, before I jumped in this morning. See, Paul is calling back to the same language he used in the beginning of this chapter to say that I am still talking about the same thing here, right? We are still talking about how to walk in a manner worthy of our identity as sons and daughters of God. So that's where we are, right? With that, what I want to actually do, that you guys, you guys were here for the reading. Like this passage is really, really long, right? And there are a lot of things going on in this passage. So what I actually want to do is take a bit of a zoomed out look at the passage just to see, like, how is this working? What is going on here? And then we'll hit a few of the details. But I just want to encourage you, like, if you're only hearing the Bible, reading the Bible, listening to the Bible on Sundays, like, it's just not going to stick as well as if we're continuously in the Word. And so I do encourage you, uh, if you walk away from this and you're like, I have no idea what Jimmy said, or if you're like, I want to know what more of what Jimmy said, both parties should look back at the passage a little bit this week and just reflect on what's going on here. Make sense? Okay, so let's go ahead and look at the zoomed out version. Uh, I already alluded to this, but when I am doing my, bi- my daily Bible reading, which maybe turns a little bit into every other day sometimes, um, I'll read a passage like this and I'll be like, oh, this is going to be an easy day. All I got to do is read this list of do's and don'ts 
be like, I'm not going to do those, and then I'm done, right? Like, it should be pretty straightforward. Um, I think we, I'll be honest, like, this is my tendency, but I think that is a bit of a missing the forest for the trees approach here, right? So I want to see the forest here. What is the flow of Ephesians 4, 17 through 32? First three verses here. Um, already have, Paul is hitting on what used to be true of the people he's talking to before Jesus, right? So, I just want you guys to know, ethnicity and things like that uh, worked a little bit different at the time, right? And so, when he says, so I tell you that you must no longer work, uh, sorry, words are hard, you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, he's talking to people who are still ethnically Gentiles, right? Uh, Gentiles, in this language just meant people who are not Jewish, right? And so what he's not, he's not saying that their ethnic identity changes. In fact, in other places, we know this because in other places in Ephesians, he hits like this is a good identity still, right? Like this is still part of who you are. Your identity ethnically does not change, uh, but this is a little bit more of the, the spiritual identity. And again, we wouldn't talk like this. We wouldn't be like, you must no longer walk as like the Italians do to someone who's Italian, right? Like, uh, we, we have a little bit of a different understanding of race, ethnicity, things like that, right? Um, but this, at the time, was an appropriate way to point to them, like, your former way of life, right? This is your former way of life. Let me find where I am. Um, but what, what he's showing us here is how the idea of sin impacts the heart, Right? You see the progression. He says that they were futile in their minds. They didn't necessarily consider Christ. Leads to a hardened heart, right? They're darkened their understanding. Hardened heart. And then that leads to a lost all sensitivity, right? So this hardened heart leads to this idea of like, we don't have sensitivity to what might be hurtful to other people or things like that. We don't have a sensitivity to ways in which we're walking away from God, right? You lose this ability to just sort of decipher, like, what is good versus what is evil in this scenario, right? It's really good to understand identities, or, I mean, ideas like this, but we're not going to go super deep into this. I just wanted to show you what was going on so we can understand the meat of the passage. So continuing to look out, zoom out, a uh, zoomed out picture of the passage, He then gets to the meat of the passage in verses 20 to 24. Um, Here he presents this idea that Christians are to put off the old self and put on the new self, right? And then in 25 through 32, you don't have to flip down, but uh, he's hitting on some ways that this looks, like put off falsehood, speak truthfully, in your anger do not sin, don't steal, be generous, etc., right? So, but this is our thesis of the passage, right? Put off the old self and put on a new self, and then a defining of what that looks like. And this is where we're really going to spend our time this morning. Just one note again. Sorry, I know I'm like rushing through the passage, but what I'm doing is I'm rushing through the passage in order to go back and present an idea with regards to the passage. You guys with me? Okay, so I do want to point out quickly, though, Um, Just one thing with the old self and the new self is really uh, convicting for me. So it says, put off the old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires. Reality is almost every, I would would venture to say every sin that we sort of take part in results from a lie, right? What we're telling ourselves is this is going to be better for us, 
right? When in reality, relationship with God is actually better for us, right? And so I just wanted to point that out. The old self all flows from lies. So it's a, it's a consideration, like what lies are we believing in our lives, right? And then the new self, what does it look like? Created to be like God, we talked about that last week, but in righteousness and holiness. I know people shudder at this when they hear this idea of righteousness and holiness sometimes, right? You think of like holy rollers, uh, like righteous is better than the rest of us, right? This idea of Christians thinking that they're above everyone else. But that our, our understanding of those words are a lot of results of the way in which the church work, or has, has operated. So I want, to, I want to say that, right? But the idea of holiness is not a separation from culture to be better than. Uh, holy does mean separated from, right? Or separated. But it's not a separation from, it's a separation to. In other words, like when people would do a holiness ritual in order to enter the temple, they were being separated to enter into the temple. In other words, into the presence of God, right? And so we just need to reorient, rework our ideas of what it means to be holy. Holy really just means set apart to be in relationship in the presence of God, right? And so that's a whole bigger thing that could preach, but I'm not going to focus there this morning, okay? So I I looked at the meat of this passage, and it's like, okay, what we're going to do is we're going to put off the old self, put on the new self, and this is what it looks like. So you may be asking yourselves, isn't that just a list of do's and don'ts like you said it was, right, from the beginning of the passage? Isn't this just going to be a quick morning, another standard that we won't be able to live up to but act like we do, right? Well, I have good news for you this morning. The answer is no. That's not all it is, I promise, okay? It is far deeper than that. And we're going to go ahead and explore that. This exploration into the depths starts with the very phrases put off and put on. What, Paul, or what does Paul use in this language? What does this mean? Well, the phrases literally mean, I have in a couple slides, I think. Uh, go to the next one. Yeah, here we go. So I have the Greek here for put off and put on. Both are obviously verbs. I'm doing something, right? Uh, put off means to lay aside or to put off. That makes sense. But, to, but put on gives us a little bit more uh, of nuance. It says to sink into clothing, to put on, to clothe oneself, right? And so this put off, put on is in relationship somehow to the ways we put off and put on clothing, okay? Why? You see, this is not the first time that Paul uses this language, and it won't be the last time. Uh, so I want to just survey with you a couple of places that Paul uses this exact same language to talk about our relationship with God. And I'm, I should have warned you, I'm throwing a lot of verses at you this morning, uh, so do with that what you want. Some of you will be excited, some of you will be like, man, this is a lot, but uh, just bear with me. It's going to help us see the bigger picture, right? Romans 13, 12 to 14, the night is nearly over, the day is almost here, so let us put aside the deeds of darkness, and put on the armor of light. And then he says in verse 14, rather, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh. Okay? Galatians 3.27, for all of you who were baptized or united, related to, into Christ, have clothed yourselves with Christ. Okay? That's another part. And then Colossians 3.12 and 14 again, therefore, as God's chosen people, 
holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Just aside, that's a lot of the language that we used, right, in verses uh, 1 to 16. So very similar. Anyways, um, and over all these virtues, put on, same language, right, clothe yourselves with love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. So at this point, it should be abundantly clear, right? Paul loves this language of putting off and putting on when listing imperatives, commands for the different churches he is writing to, right? So this highlights some of the importance of the language, right? So then the question is, why does he use this language of clothing ourselves with these virtues? I think there's a few ways we might initially to sort of jump to some conclusions based on this language, right? The first one, I think, is that maybe we're like, just as clothing is an outward cover, so too might these behaviors, right? Are these only outward behaviors that we just clothe ourselves with, we try to look better with, right? But we know Paul is not just calling us to an outward holy life, right? Look at what Jesus says in Matthew 23, 27, and 28. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside, you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside, you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. This is clearly not a good picture of outward holiness, right? Of only outward holiness. We get it, Jesus. This ain't it, right? So what else could it be? I think one aspect of it that still does have to be public and outward, though. I will say that. Remember last week, our focus was primarily on how we walk in a way that impacts other people, right? So we're going to be in humility, in gentleness, in patience, in love. Those are inherently outward behaviors, right? And the reality is, is when we put something on, people notice, right? So, One suggestion I've seen that I think aligns with what we've talked about so far in Ephesians is that we look at this like a uniform, right? You see someone in scrubs, you know he or she is a doctor or a nurse or works in a hospital. You see someone in a fireman suit, you know they're a firefighter, right? You see someone in a White Sox jersey, you know they probably just lost something. (laughs) Sorry, Zoe. Um, A uniform suggests to the outside what is true of the identity, right? An example for us, they will know that they were Christians by their love, right? Identity as a Christian means outward appearance of love, or so it should be. So the outward appearance of it all is not inherently bad, right? That's not not the inherently bad part. But I want to suggest this morning that this language of putting off and putting on is actually one level deeper than just this idea of a uniform. And so to show you that, I actually have a little bit of a story for you. Uh, And I want to warn you, it's just me being ridiculous. So in February February of 2022, uh, I was invited to a friend's birthday party where I knew no one but the friend. Uh, He's here occasionally. I was going to point him out, but he's not here this morning. So uh, we went to one of those, like, arcades, adult arcades in the city, right? Like, got to play NBA Jam and things like that. Um, I wore this fun, striped, button-down shirt. That's important. One of my favorites, right? I had literally just gotten in to my friend's birthday party. I was with the group, 
where, again, I did not know anyone at all. And this random guy who was not with our party walks by, and he goes, oh, man, like, I love your shirt. And I was like, oh, thanks. Do you want it? And he's like, what? I was like, you like my shirt. Do you want my shirt? And he was like, yeah, I want your shirt. And so then I'm, like, looking around awkwardly, and I'm like, well, I don't have another shirt, so I'm going to go grab my coat. And he's like, oh, wait, if you don't have another shirt, do you want my shirt? And I was like, yeah. And he had a coat on. And then he reveals just this beautiful Tupac shirt, right? (laughs) And I'm just like, oh, I won this trade so easily. Um, Like this is, I had a plain, I, I do have a picture for you. I had this plain uh, striped shirt. He has a Tupac shirt, and he wanted my shirt and to give me this. I was like, absolutely. Yes, please. Uh, you can go and, yeah, there we go. So here's the picture. Again, did not know the man. He was not in our party, but uh, we just felt like it was right to exchange shirts because we really liked each other's shirts, right? <laughs> the longer you're here, the more ridiculous stories you'll hear about me and how I somehow relate them to the gospel. I just wanted to warn you that. Now, I have not seen this man to this day, okay? But without realizing it, and this is why I bring this up, my smaller friend and I uh, participated in an ancient covenantal practice of exchanging robes, which bonds us for life. He didn't know it, but we did. What do I mean? Well, let me explain. We have talked about the idea of covenant before. It's a relational agreement, usually between two parties, right? Covenant is used approximately 298 times in the Bible, okay? Like I said, it's a, co- it's a relational agreement. It's like a contract, but there are relational elements to it, right? So a great example is a marriage. I take you to be my wife, right, to have and to hold in sickness and in health, for richer or for poorer, uh, till death do us part. That is a vow to another person, right? You make an agreement as you enter a different type of relationship. That is a covenant, Right? And I'm not sure if you're super aware of this, but paper agreements didn't necessarily exist in um, the the biblical times, particularly the Old Testament, right? Like, it'd take a long time to etch into stone the agreement. So, what they would do is they would have covenant rituals in order to establish the covenant, in order to say, this is what you're going to do, this is what I'm going to do. We're going to do a ritual to symbolize the agreement, right? And so we talked about this one a long time ago, but the example was like a sacrifice of an animal, right? And in doing so, you're saying, if I do not hold my end of the covenant, whatever happened to that animal, may it happen to me, right? AKA death. Or they would set up stone, a pillar of stones, a pillar of stones, and they would say, this pillar of stones represents God as our witness, right? And so we know God sees our covenant. And so may God take care of which of the parties do not uphold their end of the covenant, right? Another sort of example. Or another custom was to exchange your robes with the other party, right? I want to show you an example of this in the Word in 1 Samuel 18. Uh, 1 to 4, it says, And after David had finished talking with Saul, Jonathan became one in spirit with David, and he loved him as himself. From that day, Saul kept David with him and did not let him return home to his family. And Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Jonathan took off the robe he was wearing and gave it to David, along with his tunic and even his sword, his bow, and his belt, right? 
Why was this a practice that represented the covenant, the agreement between two people? Well, say two kings exchanged robes in a, in a covenant, just having the robe of another king, right, with it, its distinct colors, with maybe its insignia, would be a sign that you made a covenant with him, right? Because either the king gave you the robe or you're weird, right? Like you somehow got the robe from him. But it was, it was a sign of a covenant. I have this king's robe, therefore you can see that we have made a covenant. It's an outward sign of the covenant, right? But why robes in particular? Couldn't it be any item with distinction? Well, the robe, when worn, signified that you would be afforded the privilege of being seen like the other king, right? So, let me give you an example. Say King A is traveling through the countryside of King B, right? But King A wants to be safe when he does it. He will go to King B and say, I want to travel with you. Can I make a covenant with you so that I am safe while I travel through your countryside? So what King B would do is he would give him his robe and he would say, here is my robe so that as you travel through, people, we don't have like social media, right? People are not going to see on Twitter that we made a covenant. So I, you have the robe to show the people that you uh, made a covenant with me, right? And then King A would receive like cattle or something from King B, right? And so you have the robe, and if King B were to run into maybe, or I don't remember which king is which, but you understand. If, if the traveling king, <laughs> um, King A, thank you, yeah, look at this. Um, if, if King A were to run into maybe part of the army of King B in wearing the robe, they would have to treat him as if he were their king. Make sense? So it is a sign not just that you've made the covenant, but it is a sign that you ought to be treated like the king himself, right? So the exchanging of robes provides safety and relationship, right? So if you ever see my shirt exchanged friend out and about, treat him as if he were me, right? <laughs> Actually, don't do that. That would be pretty rough for him. Um, okay, no, I'm joking. Okay, so how does this relate to taking off the old self and putting on the new self? I believe the language that Paul uses here is intentionally covenantal. Okay? It's intentionally covenantal. And you, you can sort of get there yourself, but let's explain. I've already shown you that the language specifically uses verb, verbs that refer to clothing, right? But what is the nature of the new self that would point to covenant? I think our answer is found in a verse we already looked at as an example of another way that Paul uses this language. Look back at Galatians 3 with me. So in Christ Jesus, you are, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. What's happening? So we have Ephesians that says we ought to put on, clothe ourselves with a new self right? We have Galatians that says to clothe ourselves with Jesus himself. What does this mean? I believe this is the covenant. Jesus, in his love, has offered his robe to us that we might clothe ourselves in it. And what is afforded to the person who wears the robe of the king? They are afforded, afforded the privilege of being seen like the king, right? That's why it says in verse 26 here, so in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God. In wearing Christ's robe, we are God's children. We are seen as Jesus is seen by God himself, right? 
In other words, putting on the new self is the same thing as putting on Christ and is made possible because Christ gave his life for us, right? We have been offered the right standing with the Father of Jesus himself through a covenantal relationship. We have been given his robe, right? But the question is then, has there been been an exchange? Did Jesus take our robe or did we just receive his? You already know the answer, but I'm still going to show you. Philippians 2, 7 through 8. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Jesus condescended from the right hand of the Father, and yes, he took on our robe, right? The robe of humanity, of flesh and blood, and in humility, where did he take that robe? To the cross. Let me give you another example. 2 Corinthians 5.21. God made him who knew no sin to be sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God, right? This language of making is the same language as putting on or putting off, right? In him, uh, Jesus, who knew no sin, he took on sin. He put on sin so that we could put on righteousness, You guys with me? Like, come on. Like, I'm getting so excited right now. This is so, God is so cool, right? Jesus took on our robe, was seen like we were for a brief moment in history, and it cost him his life, right? Yet, in his death, what happens? Hebrews 2, 14. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too took on their robe. He shared in their humanity so that by his death, he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, right? Jesus was seen like us for a moment so that we could be seen like him for eternity. Jesus was seen like us for a moment so that we could be seen like him for an eternity. We have been afforded the privilege of being treated like the king and there was nothing we did and nothing we can do to deserve it. So how does this exchange play out out practically in our lives? What does this look like now? What is the outcome of the exchanging of robes? Well, I want to look briefly at some of the ways it lists out what this looks like, and then we will uh, end by looking at one more big picture and how we do it, okay? So what does this look like? What are the old self and new self characterized by? Well, verses 25 to 32 lay this out pretty explicitly. So I just want to hit a few on hit on a few of these ideas, and again, uh, get in your word, pray that scary prayer of God show me my sin, and maybe see how some of this relates to you, if you want. Um, You'll notice often in Paul's writings that he does not just give us something to stop doing, but will also give us something to replace the behavior, right? Like say you're trying to quit smoking, the doctor will tell you just chew gum anytime you have that urgent. You're like replacing behavior, right? And we see that a lot here. Do not lie, but speak truthfully, Steal no longer, but work that you may help others in need. No unwholesome talk, but only that which is helpful for building others up. Get rid of all these things that hurt interpersonal relationships and put on kindness, compassion, forgiveness. You see the pattern. So let me apply a few of these, uh, and then we'll look one more time at a big picture. So in your anger, do not sin. I know that you've heard this before, but I want to remind you. This does not say don't be angry, okay? Righteous anger is a thing. Uh, a response to an unjust world is anger, right? A response to another shooting is anger, 
right? Like we saw the, the shooting of the, of the neighbors in Texas. Like, anger is a right response. So God is not saying don't be angry. He's saying do not sin in your anger, right? Do not retaliate. Do not use hurtful words, but allow your anger to motivate you toward good, toward just work, right? Unwholesome talk, talk that builds up. Uh, the word for unwholesome here uh, is actually literally translated to rotten. Uh, in fact, the other places this word is used is in the, New, in the New Testament is almost primarily Jesus talking about trees. So he'll say good trees produce good fruit, bad trees produce unwholesome or rotten fruit, right? So in other words, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, right? This highlights a lot of what we have talked about, that this idea of an unwholesome talk, that our identity, or sorry, our behavior flows from our identity. So wholesome, building up talk, flows out from when our roots are down and our eyes are on Jesus. Make sense? And then one that uh, people are like scared to talk about or it's kind of a void, do not grieve the Holy Spirit. This one's a lot longer, but I just want to hit on it quickly. Here it highlights that we were like one of the parts, uh, I think it's the next slide, Dan. Maybe two slides from now. Just like, uh, yeah, there we go. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Uh, where is it? Do not grieve the Holy Spirit with whom you were sealed for the day of the redemption. So they draw our attention back to Ephesians 1, where it reminds us that we were sealed with the Holy Spirit, right? And so, uh, in other words, this is telling us that like we have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, right? The Holy Spirit lives inside of us. And the Spirit, being part of the Trinity, has a main pers- purpose of glorifying Jesus, right? He brings honor to Jesus. He puts Jesus on display. So if we have the Holy Spirit, which followers of Jesus do, grieving the Holy Spirit just means not living in light of our true identity, aka not living like we are wearing the cloak. This grieves the Spirit because he has come to us that we might honor Jesus. So if Jesus is not honored in our lives, in our, in our actions, that's what it means to grieve the Holy Spirit, right? The Holy Spirit is sad that we do not represent Jesus as a temple of God, right? Again, a lot more that I wish I could explain, so dig in yourselves. So where does this leave us? I think practically the most important aspect here is not that we are looking at these things as a list of things to work on, but rather the fruit of a changed life, right? We think about these. These are the outcomes of putting on the new self, of being like Jesus, not necessarily things it's like, I got to be better, right? I got to white knuckle my way through this. That's, it's just not how it works. And so practically, what does it look like to put off the old self and put on the new self? I want to look at two more verses to end our time. Romans 6, 6. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin may be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. In other words, because Jesus has done this, because he took on our robe and offered us his, we have not just been given the appearance of the Son of God, but we have been given the power over sin too. Our old self was was crucified with him, so we are no longer slaves to sin. We have power over the old self. Death no longer holds the keys, right? We can trust then, by faith, that we can lay the old self aside, that it no longer has power over us. Old habits do die hard. Like, I do not disagree with you. So this doesn't, as a result, look like a one-time thing, right? Putting on the robe is a one-time thing in terms of being seen righteous by God, 
Like making a decision to follow Jesus, putting on that robe, is a one-time thing. But living like it is a moment-by-moment practical thing that we must continue to do. Continue to put to death the old self and pave new, pave new habits of life by Christ's resurrection power, right? And do it in the power of community, to earn the presence of community. Like, I got to say that. Like, all of my growth, growth has been because others have reminded me of the, of the grace of Jesus, right? Okay, last verse. Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. So again, the old self has died with Christ. And I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So then also, it is not long, no longer me who lives, but Christ who lives in me via faith, right? In other words, Jesus' death gives us the power to put off the old self, yes. And Jesus's, Jesus living in us gives us the power to put on the new self. So both come as a result of Jesus's power. To walk in step with the Spirit, right? You struggle with rotten talk and building others up. Ask God for health by the Spirit, for help by the Spirit, and trust He will help you. It's as simple as it is. You struggle with greed, anger, bitterness. Bring it to God. Trust that He can help you with this. Know it has been nailed to the cross, and ask for heaps of a compassionate spirit, right? Like, the idea, I want you guys to just think about this. The idea of like putting off an old self and putting on a new self also does not, that is not like create a new self, right? Do the work of putting the old self to death. Jesus has already done that work, right? Many of you are exhausted because you are trying to live this life in your own power, and it's never going to work, right? Jesus's power has to be the one that fuels this. The power to put off the old self and put on the new self comes entirely from God because of, the Je- because of Jesus by the Spirit. That is good news, is it not? Thank you for listening to the Missio Day Uptown Podcast. We are a church committed to our neighborhood, seeking to love and serve our beautifully unique community as we join God as he makes all things new. To learn more about us, visit mduptown.com.